As we begin our message this morning on Christian liberty, I want us to get our thoughts started and oriented in that direction by reading a brief quotation from John Calvin from Calvin's Institutes. And here's what Calvin said with respect to this very important subject of Christian liberty. He says, Freedom is especially an appendage of justification. And it is of no little avail in understanding its power. Unless this freedom be comprehended, neither Christ nor gospel truth nor inner peace of soul can be rightly known. For when consciences once ensnare themselves, they enter a long and inextricable maze, not easy to get out of. If a man begins to doubt whether he may use linen for sheets, shirts, handkerchiefs, and napkins, he will afterward be uncertain also about hemp. And finally, doubt will even arise over towel, for he will turn over in his mind whether he can sup without napkins or go without a handkerchief. And if any man should consider dainty or food unlawful, in the end he will not be at peace before God. When he eats either black bread or common victuals, while it occurs to him that he could sustain his body on even coarser foods. And if he boggles at sweet wine, he will not be clear in his conscience about whether he can drink flat wine. And finally, he will not dare even touch if sweeter and cleaner than other water. Well, I, I read this quote, and I know it's an extended quote, but it gets us thinking here in the direction of the significance and the importance of Christian liberty or the topic of Christian liberty of the Christian life. You see, John Calvin says you cannot even begin to understand the gospel correctly until you understand that you are free in Christ from the law, from its terrors, from its consequence, and from its condemnation. You see, the whole point that John Calvin is making here in this quotation, I do believe the Apostle Paul is making as well in the book of Galatians, is that you absolutely have to be convinced and persuaded in the depths of your heart that there is no law which can bind you outside of the Word of God. Not the opinions and commandments of men, not even the commandments of the Mosaic Covenant can be used to ensnare your conscience and to entrap you into a way of life that God has not bound you to through His Word. And so this morning, as we take on this topic of Christian liberty, I want us to understand that it is really the pillar upon which our Christian life is built. It is the pillar upon which our Christian life is built. The Apostle Paul, as we said last time, we noted as we took up verse 12 of chapter 4, was making a, tra a transition in his thinking. We had said that prior to verse 12 of chapter 4 that the Apostle Paul had been explaining, beginning all the way back into chapter 3, that the law was no means to justify yourself with. It was no instrument to bring justification to you because all that the law could do was be a terror to your soul, imprison you, and entrap you in your sins. You see, Paul has been answering the folly of these Galatians who are following their false teachers in the belief that justification and even the Christian life is about Jesus plus my works. And Paul is exposing the folly and the futility of that way of thinking about justification. And now he transitions into an argument in terms of our Christian liberty, pointing out that we are utterly free from the law, the Mosaic law. And he begins his argument now from Scripture, 
beginning in verse 21, and he uses an allegory. He uses an allegory to illustrate and ground his teaching on Christian liberty. Before we get to that allegory, though, I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 21, who he addresses himself to. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Do you see who he's addressing? He's saying, you who desire to be under the law. What does it mean to be under the law? Again, I quote from Calvin. He says, to come under the yoke of the law on the condition that God will act toward you according to the covenant of the law and that you in turn will bind yourself to keep the law. In other words, what Calvin is saying here, that under the law is saying that we have to submit ourselves to the Mosaic covenant in terms of all of its stipulations, but particularly its principle. Particularly its principle. Remember, the principle of the Mosaic Covenant was do this and live. Keep all of the commandments, keep all 613 statutes of the law, and you will live. But then the law also says, cursed is everyone who continues not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You see, when Calvin says, you who desire to be under the law, he's saying, all of you who think that you are able to keep all the commandments of God, and if you do that with perfection and precision all of your life long, you will receive blessing from the Lord. I'm talking to you. Or to bring it to a more contemporary example, I was listening to a man the other day who was explaining to me the great freedom and relief he finds in being in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great freedom and relief of conscience that he experiences now as a reformed Christian. He was trying to explain to me what joy it was to understand the gospel finally. But he says, you know what, Pastor? From day to day I struggle in understanding this and working out in my life. He says, I have to be honest with you that there are some days in which I evaluate my relationship to the Lord based upon how much money is in my cash register at my business. You see, it had been so ingrained in his way of thinking as he had been a part of another church which was claiming to be a Protestant evangelical church that the way to blessing, the way to finding out whether you're really in with God, the way to understanding whether you have a right relationship with God is how much stuff you have in your life. If you have a big house and you have a nice car and you have good health and you have a lot of money in your cash register and your 401k is full of money and the future looks really bright with material prosperity and blessings and possessions, then I must be a good Christian. I must be right with God. And you know how this is. There is this, this temptation to evaluate What's going to happen in our life and how, we are, how well we are relating to God by the kind of things that we do. And so we start to feel bad. Did we have our quiet time today? Did we read our Bibles enough today? Did we pray enough? Did we remember all the requests that we were supposed to? And you know how this way of evaluating your Christian walk goes. And pretty soon people get so superstitious in this way of thinking that they are then uh, cast into anxiety and they become distraught because they think, well, I haven't done enough for the Lord yet, so I'm not going to get any blessing in my life. 
That's who Paul is talking to here. People who think that they are establishing their relationship to the Lord based upon their obedience to law. That's what Christian liberty is all about. And Paul is proclaiming to you that that's not how you evaluate your relationship to the Lord. And that's not how you get in good with the Lord. You can have all the quiet times you want. You can go all the Bible studies you want. You can do all these so-called spiritual activities you want. And they do nothing to rightly relate you to God. Because God does that for you in Jesus Christ. You see how important this is to the Christian life. It means absolutely everything. It, it has everything to do with my peace of conscience from day to day. It has everything to do with my Christian consolation. It has everything to do with my assurance of my salvation. Because when you get trapped into this way of thinking that God is going to relate to me well, He is going to pour out goodness and blessing and prosperity upon me if I just keep enough of His commandments, enough of the times of the day. And people grow discouraged and weary and bitter and angry at the Lord because they can't do all of these things. Paul is talking to people who are under the law just to grasp the terror and the frustration of the law. You can turn back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, and I'm not going to take any time to expound this because we already have, but here again Paul uses the precise phrase that you find in Galatians 4.21. Under the law, he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until faith came. You see what the law does? You see what the Old Testament law, you see what the Mosaic Covenant did? The best that it could do was keep you frustrated and imprisoned, captive. Now notice that metaphor is entirely opposite of the one used in our text. Freedom. Law captivates. Law binds. Law imprisons, Paul says. And the gospel frees. It makes one free in Christ. And so you can see then that the Apostle Paul on numerous occasions in the New Testament celebrates the fact of Christians in the New Covenant not being under law. In fact, he says in Romans six fourteen through 15 he says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law. He said, as long as you find yourself under the law, as long as you find yourself day after day slavishly following all the statutes and the commandments of the law, thinking that this is how you're going to get yourself right with God, he says, as long as you do that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, the only thing that will ever happen to you is that law will be a taskmaster to you and you will be enslaved in your sins. That's the people he's talking to here. People who have the twisted desire to place themselves on the footing of the law to establish their relationship with God. And Paul takes these people by the hand and very, I would say, pastorally and compassionately says, Do you hear what the law says to you? Do you really hear the law? Well, let's 
put ourselves in that position this morning. Let ourselves. Do, do, do we hear the law? In order to hear the law's terror and its restrictiveness and confining power, Paul gives us an allegory here. He gives us an allegory. You see that beginning in verse 22 and 23. In fact, he even uses the word allegory in verse 24. He says, these things may be interpreted allegorically. You say, why an allegory? First of all, what is an allegory? Sounds like a big word. Allegory. It just means that it's a story where the actors and the people and the actions have a symbolic or spiritual meaning. That's an allegorical interpretation. It's to take a normal story, and this happens with secular stories from ancient literature, but it also happens a lot of times in the history of the church. People would look at the Old Testament scriptures particularly, and they would look back at the histories of the Old Testament, and because they couldn't find an easy application of those to Christian life, they would interpret them allegorically. So they would look at the actions or the figures or the characters or the kinds of people who are in there and they would assign arbitrarily some sort of a deep symbolic spiritual meaning to these stories. And then they would say, see, this is what it means to me. Whether you knew it or not, you've probably done this before. You know how... People have Bible study groups and they put the chairs in a circle and it's very informal and it's usually led by somebody who has no clue what the text is saying. They're just willing to facilitate it, right? And you open up the Bible and you begin to read a passage and then you throw out a question and you say, well, what does this text mean to you? I don't know. I look around. I I think it means this to me. And the next person says, oh, that's very interesting. You know, because I didn't get that interpretation out of it all. This is what it means to me. And you go around the circle through this frustrating exercise of each person saying, well, you know what? I think it means this. Well, this is what I took from it. Well, this is the impression I felt when I read that verse. You see, they're trying to get a meaning out of the text without understanding the grammar, the language, the meaning of the words, the history, the context of the text. They're just arbitrarily assigning a meaning to the Scriptures. That's allegorical interpretation right there. The interpretation is controlled by the genius, the creative genius of the interpreter. There are absolutely no objective controls in allegory. What it means to me is... And so it sounds so strange to our Protestant ears as we open up verse 24 and we see the Apostle Paul doing allegory. This may be interpreted allegorically. Why does he do that? Well, I think most likely here now as we look at the story, let's just read verses 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. And now these may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. You see that the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to take you back to the law and you're going to hear the law. Well, he turns back to the book of Genesis, which is technically within the book of the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. He takes the story of two women. And most likely the reason why the Apostle Paul even alludes to this text or even resorts to this tactic is because this is no doubt the text 
that the false teachers are now proclaiming and using in the churches of Galatia to reinforce their false doctrine. You can see what they were doing. These false teachers were coming into the church of Galatia and they were saying to these Gentiles, they're saying, do you really want to experience the higher Christian life? Do you really want to have all of this prosperity? Do you really want an abundance of blessing? Do you really want to be assured of the fact that you are the people of God? Do you really want to be assured that you have part in the eternal inheritance? Well, if you do, you need to be circumcised. You need to become a Jew. Because the Bible says that it's the descendants of Sarah that will reap the rewards of inheritance. No doubt they were looking to sex. And any Jew at that day would have known if they would have sat down with this story how it's supposed to go. Any Jew would have been able to say quickly that the descendants of Sarah are the physical descendants of Abraham. And any Jew would have been able to tell you that the physical descendants of Hagar are the Gentiles. The only way to prosperity, the only way to peace, the only way to grace, the only way to a right relationship with the Lord is to find yourself somehow in the family of Sarah. And if you are not a physical descendant of Sarah, there's one way for you to finally get yourself right. There's one way to access that higher Christian life. There's one way to reap all of those spiritual blessings, and it's to be circumcised. And so Paul takes this story, and he turns it on its head. Let's look at it a moment. It is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free. You know, the history of these two women really begins with a promise that went unfulfilled, right? The history of this story is all about a promise that went unfulfilled. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and here is this guy named Abram, who's living somewhere way west or east of Palestine, in some place called Ur of the Chaldees, no doubt, modern day Mesopotamia, Babylon, Iraq, really. God comes to him and says that he's supposed to sell all of his possessions and move all of his family and his farm and his slaves and all of his cattle and everything thousands of miles away in a strange foreign land. And God gives him this one promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. You know, and that's just proof of regeneration, isn't it? It's, reproof, it's just proof of the sovereignty of God and regeneration that here is Abraham knowing nothing of Jehovah has this revelation from God to change his whole life up at the age of 75. And so he moves. He moves thousands of miles away. He transplants his family. All in expectation of becoming a great nation. And Genesis 15 rolls around ten years later and, and Abraham now has another vision of God and people are beginning to laugh. 
People are beginning to ask questions. People are beginning to say, well, here's that crazy guy from Ur of the Chaldees who came into town saying that he is coming here with a vision from the Lord, that God's going to make him a great nation, that God's going to give him the land of Palestine as an everlasting inheritance for him and his children and his family and all of his physical descendants after him. The people are laughing at this Abraham who is now 85 years old and doesn't have a single child. Abraham has another vision. He sits with God and he says, Lord, won't Eleazar do? Take my servant Eleazar. He's a good guy. He runs the house well. He's responsible. He's mature. Can't you just make him the seed of the promise? Can't we just deal with Eleazar? God takes Abraham by the hand, leads him outside. must have been... A beautiful starlit night and Abraham as he looks up at the vastness of the stars and the sweep of the canvas of heaven God says to Abraham as many as the stars are in heaven so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed God again. Abraham believed God again. The scripture said that when Abraham believed God accounted unto him as righteousness. But Abraham grew impatient. Hardly even Weeks or maybe even months later, you go to chapter 16 of Genesis and the next thing you know here is Sarah. She doesn't have any faith anymore. She's weak in her faith. She's heard about the promises. She's transplanted her family. She's around no friends. She, she, nothing's familiar. She's living in a tent in the middle of a dusty desert. And she says, Abraham, why don't you just take Hagar? She's young. She's vibrant. She's strong. We can, we can produce that seed with her. And so Sarah suggests to Abraham, you take her and we'll have this child. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out how to make good on these promises. Because God obviously is not trying. And so you know the rest of the story. Hagar conceives Ishmael. Genesis 17. 14 years later. Genesis 17. 14 years later. And here... Here God again comes to Abraham and, and this time Abraham is so broken down. Abraham at this point is so disbelieving. Abraham at this point is so frustrated that he says in the Lord, he just bursts out in Genesis 17, all that Ishmael would live before you. Don't you understand, Lord? I, I'm, I'm in my late 80s. I'm up to 90 and you have not given me anything. And, and Oh, can't, can't Ishmael just live before you? I'm too old. Sarah's too old. Let me help you. Let me help you. Well, you know, finally, Genesis 21, God does the unbelievable, the unthinkable, the impossible. Sarah conceives at 90 years old, Abraham's 99, and here comes Isaac. After Isaac is weaned, about three to four years old, she sees Ishmael mocking little Isaac, and she says, Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. And it's very interesting, the Apostle Paul takes those words now in verse 30 of our text, and he says, but what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. 
Paul begins to interpret this allegory of these two ladies and their two children and all the efforts that they went into them. But it's so interesting here what he does now with that history in mind, with all the frustration, all of the impossibility of these promises, all of the apparent unfaithfulness, and finally God comes into the picture and does the impossible and the miraculous on his own timing, by his grace, through his sovereignty. Paul takes all of these things into account now to bring out this allegorical interpretation and notice what he says. He begins to apply this allegory to the people of God here in Galatia and to us as well. He says, verse 24, this may be interpreted allegory. All this striving, all the efforts of these two ladies, all the happenings with them with Sarah and Hagar and their children. He says, these may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Now notice which covenant Hagar corresponded to. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Two covenants. What covenant is he He's talking about? Mount Sinai. The only covenant that was ever made in Mount Sinai is the Mosaic Covenant. Remember when God said to Moses, Gather the people of Israel before me and before my holy mountain, because I want to meet them. And you remember, God begins to declare the statutes of His law to them. And the people of God, when they heard this terrible thundering noise from the mountain, they heard the voice of the Lord speak, they just quivered in fear. And they said, Don't talk to us anymore. Terrified. Overcome with the majesty and the holiness of God and knowing that their sinners say, we, we can't listen to God, we're going to die. We need a mediator. In Exodus 24 shows the ratification of that covenant and Moses slays the bull and the goats and he brings out a big bull of blood and he, and he throws it upon the people, sealing the Mosaic covenant with them symbolizing the curse that will come upon them if they do not keep all of the statutes written in the book of the law to do them. Paul looks at that covenant and he says that covenant is works. He says that covenant is works. That's Hagar. See, he's interpreting the actions of Sarah and Abraham trying to produce Ishmael. Remember, they had a promise and the promise wasn't good enough for them. Accessing God's promises by grace, by His sovereignty, through the power of His Holy Spirit, was not good enough for Sarah and Abraham. They took matters into their own hands, and according to the flesh, according to their own resources, they were going to reproduce the child of promise. Paul says that's works. Whenever you try to help God out, whenever by your own strength, Apart from the grace of God, you say, I'm going to lay hold of God and His promises and His grace. I am going to reach up into the heavens and take my blessings by the sheer force of my obedience. Paul says, that's works. That's Mount Sinai. That's Hagar. That's slavery. But now he does something that no interpreter of the ancient Bible who was a Jew would have ever have done or even have thought of. Look at verse 25. Remember he said, Sinai is Hagar. Now he says, verse 25, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Everybody would have said yes. She corresponds to present Jerusalem. 
Do you see what Paul has just done here with the story? He's turned it on its head and he has said, the physical descendants of Sarah are the spiritual descendants of Hagar. He says, all of you Jews who are circumcised in the flesh, all of you Jews who boast in your pedigrees, all of you Jews who try with all of your might to, to just sort of lay hold of and clutch to this relationship to Abraham. He says, all of you Jews are Hagar's descendants. All of you Jews are Ishmaelites. The physical descendants of Sarah have become the spiritual descendants of Hagar and he says you're in slavery remarkable and now he does something even more interesting in verse 26 and 27 the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother who is he talking about remember the first woman is Hagar the second one has to be Sarah and her children no longer are Ishmael. But they're you. She's our mother. Ours. Jews, Gentiles. She's our mother. For it is written. And now he applies Isaiah 54.1 to the church. Oh, barren one who does not bear. That's Sarah, right? Barren one who does not bear. Way beyond the possibility, humanly speaking, of producing a child. Oh, barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Wasn't that what Sarah was doing? She was frustrated. She was upset. She felt like God just didn't even love her, right? If God loved her, why didn't He favor her with a child? Oh, barren one, cry out. You who are in labor, cry aloud. Now is the promise in Isaiah 54.1 For the children of the desolate that is the children of desolate Sarah will be more than the one who has a husband. Paul stands this whole thing on his head now and he says you Gentiles you believing Gentiles are the children of Sarah. You believing Gentiles have access now to all of the privileges and blessings and promises of the covenant. You don't have to worry about your eternal inheritance. You don't have to worry about whether you're in or whether you're out with God based upon how many of the commandments you kept on your commandment checklist. How you determine whether you're in or whether you're out. How you determine whether you have a part in the inheritance is, are you a descendant of Sarah spiritually? Oh, remarkable and even mind-boggling application. Several things here we could say about this now, bringing it down to our situation and to ourselves. But Paul guides us in that. I want to give you just a few quick points in Paul's application here to us and then make a couple of applications on my own from the text. But first of all, as Paul applies this allegory to the Galatians, and he says, first of all, Sinai covenant, the law, the Mosaic covenant, is slavery. Now you all need to hear that. People who think now in the New Covenant that the best thing we can do is run back to the Old Testament as fast as we can. Lay hold of the types and shadows. Put ourselves under the 613 statutes of the law and want to almost become Israel all over again. He says to you people, don't you understand what that is? 
to run back to Exodus, to run back to Deuteronomy, to put yourself back into Leviticus, he says, that is slavery and bondage. Oh, it's terrible. Why do Christians want to... Why do so-called Christians want that? Oh, you see it all the time. Uh, people in reform circles are always saying, oh, you know, we've got to go back to Israel. We've got to go back to the, to the Mosaic Covenant. If we want to know how to live as a people of God, if we want to know how to make this a godly Christian nation again, we've got to run back to the Old Testament. Hurry up. Get back to Deuteronomy. We'll figure out how to be a Christian nation. Or you see these guys on TV who are selling you health products, right? Oh, if you just want to have good health, if you just want to have, uh, if, you, if you want to get rid of all those physical ailments and problems you have, you know, the real secret to how you really have a good, healthy, long-lasting life is you go back to kosher dieting because there's secrets in the law, medical secrets. You want to have success in your life? You want to have a fat bank account? You want to have a gold watch? You want to drive a Cadillac? You want to have a three-story house? You want to have a whole bunch of brand new cars? Just follow this plan. Secrets of spiritual living at a higher level all comes from the Old Testament. You know what Paul says about that? He says that's slavery. That's bondage. But it even gets worse. Being circumcised in order to be counted as a Jew and to access the covenant promises of the Old Testament is spiritual death. Look at what Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 5. He says, look, I say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It gets even worse in verse 4. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Christ is no profit to you if you try to secure your relationship to God with works. You say, I have my faith, but I've got to keep all these commandments too. I have my faith, but you know I have this big checklist on my refrigerator with all these boxes next to it, with all these commands I've got to follow. Otherwise God's not going to be happy. Paul says if you do that, Christ is of no advantage. You would be justified. Ah, somebody's going to say, well, I'm going back to the Old Testament law not to be justified. I'm just going back for principles of Christian living. I'm just going back because I know of no better place to go to find all kinds of abundant revelation on all kinds of matters that the New Testament just does not cover. Uh, Paul says you can't go back to it. That's the problem. You can't just pick and choose. You either put yourself under the Mosaic Covenant, which was made with the national people of Israel, or you don't. You lock, stock, and barrel. You become a part of it. Or you live under the new covenant. Follow the law of Christ. He says, if you do though, if you go back to that, you're under a curse. Leads to spiritual destruction. Finally, verse 8. I want you to see this. Where does that idea come from? Where does this idea come from that the way to get right with God and to have a higher, more blessed Christian life come from by following the so-called principles of the Old Testament? You know what he says? Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Who called you? Who called you? A preacher? 
God called you. He says this desire to become ensnared and enslaved and caught up in the bondage of the Old Testament law, he says, is not of him who calls. It's not of God. What do we do with this passage this morning? As I said, I have a couple of applications for us. First of all, I want us all to beware. I want us all to be aware of the Hagar solution. You all need to be aware of the Hagar solution because deep inside of all of us is the impulse to be made like Ishmael. Deep inside even the heart of a Christian is this, this frustrating impulse that says, i got to do something. i got to work. i got to strive. i got to pray harder. i got to do more Bible studies. i got to do this and i got to do that. Otherwise, God's just not going to be pleased with me. Otherwise, I'm just not going to get what I need. It says, i got to do something. i got to do something more than believe. i got to have something more than grace. Beware of that. The Pharisee, the impulse to be a Pharisee is deep within the heart lurking there. And you know what? As soon as you are told in the name of Christ that you get to do something to help out God, what happens? Oh, you are so flattered, aren't you? Oh, you are so flattered. It's so appealing to hear somebody say, Oh, you're not so bad after all. There's something you can do to help God out. Isn't that wonderful? You're strong enough. If you would just only try hard enough, oh man, there's a, there's a role for you. You can help out Jesus. Oh, if you buy into that people of God, it's soul destroying. It's enslaving. At first it seems so exciting. It really does. But then as the days and the weeks and the years roll on and the frustration and the fatigue of being unable to even in one point uphold the law of God, souls become overwhelmed with despair. Doubt begins to crush the soul. And people grow so frustrated and weary in their Christian walk, they just want to give up. I don't know if that's in you this morning. I don't know if that's the policy or the path you've been trying to follow, but I want to tell you this morning, if you're tired and weary of trying in your own strength to establish a relationship with God based upon you, there's hope. There's freedom in Christ. Your relationship has been secured 100% by the precious blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, all you have to do is believe. And you just keep laying hold of Christ and you keep getting more of Christ and when you get more of Christ, you get more of His grace. That's how God works. That's how God deals with His people. Promise. Grace. Faith. And that brings true liberty. There's one other thing I want us to notice here this morning. And next week we're going to have to go into part two of hang on to your Christian freedom and talk about how it applies in maybe some more concrete ways to our Christian walk. But there's one thing I want us 
to see here this morning as we move away from our text. And that is really the amazing power of the Gospel. Isn't it amazing? Just when God looks like He's unfaithful, just when it looks like God is not going to keep His promises, just when it looks like there's absolutely no hope of ever receiving the promised reward. Here, Abraham's 99, Sarah's 90. They're way past the age of having children. What happens? When it looks like all is lost, when it looks like Abraham is an utter failure, when it looks like the promises will never materialize, when it looks like death is on the horizon and God just didn't follow through, what happens? He works sovereignly, miraculously, mightily, and graciously. He takes the people who are incapable. He takes the people who are broken. He takes the people who are useless. He takes the people who Scripture even says, as it looks back to Abraham and Sarah, it says they were as good as dead. And then what did he do? He gave him life. That's the power of the gospel. That's the picture of people outside of Christ, isn't it? They are as good as dead, Scripture says. You know what? It's only when you are as good as dead. It's only when you are as good as dead that God will work. I want you to notice how different this is than the way people conceive of things today though, isn't it? Oh, how different it is from the prophets of the secular gospel of today who say that all ethical decision making, all chances for change and life change in people is all about their genes. It's all about their social environment. Are you trapped in drugs or alcohol? Well, what you have to do is find out whether you have the gene for being a drunk or a drug addict. And if you have that, I'm sorry, there's no hope for you. It's just in the genes. There's no way to get around it. Are you violent? Are you a criminal? Well, look at your social environment and your upbringing. And if that's what it was, if it was bad and it was unfavorable, and it wasn't the right circumstances to produce morally upright, good citizens, guess what? You should be incarcerated because there's no hope for you. There's no rehabilitation. You're just a bad seed because you were brought up bad and wrong. Are you a liar? You're just congenital liar. It's in the genes. There's nothing that can be done about it. Are you a homosexual? It's God's fault. It's not your decision. You're trapped in this this body and you have all these wrong impulses and desires. And and you know what? It's not your fault. It's God's. It's in the genes. And you know what they say now when they say that? There's no hope. There's no help. The best that can be done is that people would have a little understanding Oh, maybe you can take some medicine and it will help you for a while. A little bit. The fact of the matter is, you're stuck with your genes. God is cruel. But I want you to see here this morning, people of God, the amazing power of the gospel to take the people who are as good as dead, incapable of offering anything to God to help Him out, Slaved in their sins, pursuing the works of their flesh, slaved in their addictions, 
And God takes them marvelously, miraculously, sovereignly, supernaturally, graciously regenerates them and changes their heart and then He fixes their life. That's the power of the Gospel. There's nothing like it under the sun. And so Paul says, people of God, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Amen. We're going to respond to the preaching of God's Word this morning and also prepare now for the sacrament of Holy Communion.